Good afternoon. Great to be with you. I know you all have had a long day, and the last thing you probably want is another speaker. However, my assignment, my brother Pat used to tell me, if you're ever going to uh, be, it's going to be a number of speakers, make certain you're first. That's key. <laughs> I'm last. I failed to pick up that message from him. And Anyhow, I'm delighted to be here. I'm always pleased to speak uh, for Claire Booth Luce Institute. Uh, I, I consider it just a, a marvelous organization that truly changed lives. And I've seen it, I've witnessed it for over 20 years now, and, and I am proud to be associated with it. And I think you all um, probably already realized the enormous impact it can have on you and friends. Um, you heard I was Treasury United States in 1981, anyone doing some subtraction there. I just thought I'd better clarify. I was a child prodigy, age 12, Treasury United States. What can I say? Didn't even have my license yet. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm speaking a little bit today about, about what it is to be a leader. Uh, but, but before that, I think there's a first step, and that is why would you want to be a leader? So I have a couple questions for you. And that would be, are you proud to be an American? Do you love our founding fathers? Are, do you appreciate this great gift that they gave to us? And do you understand the enormous benefits that we have simply because we are American. Do you feel any obligation to a, to a people that was able to give us a country that has been free for 250 years, that had the rule of law prevail all of that time, and has had allowed millions and millions of Americans to prosper and watch their children do the same? Do you feel any responsibility to this great gift that we have. So a year ago or so, a little two years now, a year and a half, there was a candidate running for president and he made his motto, make America great again. And the media and the left thought it corny, silly, ridiculed it, but it touched a nerve in this country because people across this country, tens of millions, understand that and believe it in their hearts. They knew an America that was great, and they were witnessing firsthand things, important aspects, slipping away. So I ask you again, what is your commitment to this great country of ours? It has got to be something more than paying taxes and voting. It's got to be something much more if this country is to remain great. You are our future leaders. You are without question, have the ability, and I've seen firsthand and met so many of you over these last 30 years as I've spoken on campuses. I have seen it. I have seen the amazing ability of those of you who truly understand what we have here and are willing to commit your lives to making certain you do your share to keep it great. And I have no question in my mind, every single one of you can do yours if you start to make that commitment now. Don't think this is something for the future, to put away when you already have a house 
and you've raised your kids and sometime in, in later life that maybe you'll look around and see what you can do. You start now or we lose it. So how do we do that? First, understand what George Washington said. The sacred fire of liberty is in the hands of the American people. <clears throat> is in the hands of the American people. Who is that? Not the rich and famous, he didn't say. Not the political elite. No. He's not talking about the political powerful ones in this country. He spoke about the American people. That's me and that's you. He didn't say when you got your condos or you got married or you settled or you got your degrees. No, he said American people and he means now. And as I look at all that's going on in this country today, I am more certain than ever that you all have to step up to the plate. Look at the freedoms that we have and look how people are responding. We have school shootings, terrible tragedies. When I was growing up, we didn't have any such thing. No such thing. But we have them today and there'll be more. So you ask yourself, why? Why is this happening? And you look at the media and you look at the left and they say it's the NRA, it's guns. We gotta get rid, we gotta roll back that Second Amendment. That is a constitutional right of ours, and they want to roll it back. They talk health care, they pass a huge bill, and it pressures nuns and Christian organizations to promote abortion. They say you'll be violating the law if you don't permit abortions in your hospitals or encourage it in your clinics, whatever it be. You have small businesses like a bakery a lady that owns a little bakery, and they pass laws, and it then come to her and say, you have to agree to, partic to participate in a marriage of gay to gay people. You have to. It's required by law. And it's against her religious beliefs. What, what, how could that possibly be? She just owns a little bakery, and somehow big government has come down and told her her First Amendment rights have been eroded. She cannot live and practice her religious beliefs. That one was reversed, thank goodness. Okay, we have the kids in school today. And this happened long before your time. When I was raised, we said prayers at the beginning of school. And we had basketball games, baseball games, whatever it is. We said a prayer before we started. Prayers were something very common, understood to be something we did. What happened to God and commandments? They are re taken right out of the schools. The kids don't have the benefit, the privilege of learning about their great creator, about the commandments that have been put down for our sake to guide us and direct us, stripped of this information. Families have been not long, no longer there for so many of our kids. Fathers not present in their lives. You know, I've been studying carefully some of these, these school shootings. There's some common factors that are very legitimate for discussion purposes. And you would think the media might be examining them just a bit, looking at, see if there's something we can see that maybe we could stop them before this terrible moment. In Parkland, for instance, this young boy, he was adopted. And he lost his adoptive father when he was six. No father in his family. 
Then his mother died. Friends picked them up. You know what he said? I am alone in this world. I am alone. I have no one. How many kids in this country are alone? Just alone. Feel at the age of 15 or 16. They have no one. Now, I'm not going to suggest that he didn't have serious mental issues. But to be alone, to feel that. What happened to father and mothers who were there? And then if they weren't there, as in this poor child's case, what about your church family? What about aunts and uncles and siblings? I had so many siblings in my family when I was growing up. I had seven brothers and a sister. I used to think when I was in my 20s, if anything happens, I don't need to get a real good job. I'll just go to one of my brothers and get some money. I'll be fine. I'll be set. I'll just go down the list. I have seven. I'll be fine for a while. You know, I mean, I felt a sense of security because I had family around me. Now, I raised three boys as a single mom. They didn't have a dad there. But you bet you, they were exposed to a lot of men who were there for them at church, at school, teachers stepping in and trying to make certain that they had the support they needed. That's what kids deserve. There should be neighborhoods. There should be families, families and aunts and uncles, the extended family. There should be neighborhoods in America, neighborhoods like when I had a bee sting and mom and dad weren't home, I raced to the neighbors. And they invited me in, took care of me, and gave me a little snack. We always had people in the neighborhood we could go to. Strong neighborhoods where people looked after each other. That's what makes America great, that we have these families there to nurture our kids. We have neighborhoods to be there for them. We have church families to guide them, direct them. There's so many people. We have coaches and we have teachers. How could this boy be alone? Something has failed. And that's the discussion that we should be having. That's where it should be going. How in the world would they want to talk about gun rights when we have kids feeling alone? And it's not there. It's not there. How do we keep America great if we don't have people across this country saying, what's happened here and what can we do? What can I do? What can my family do? To make certain this doesn't happen to anyone we know. That's being a great American. That's being certain that you can change people around you because of all that you have, instead of allowing one to go through life and turn up at 19 and not have any other options. So I ask you, Again, what is your commitment to this great, great cause we call America? Teddy Roosevelt made it clear, to be a good citizen, he said, is a lot more than your civic duties. Because just civic duties will not keep this country great. We will lose it. And he talked about being a good father, a good mother, a good parent. He talked about being a good neighbor, being honest. He talked about building your communities. He talked about being there and loving this country and standing up for it and speaking out and making certain everyone around you celebrated with you the greatness of this country. And that's what I believe each of you has to do and has to do now. And don't get me wrong, it is not easy to be a leader. But that's what I'm talking about here, a true leader. Look at college campuses. You can tell me stories. It's amazing out there. 
you, you, if you have religious beliefs, you best not speak about them. There's words we're told that you're not to use, thoughts that are not to be expressed. Conservative ideas, best bury them and talk about America being great could get you tossed on your head. But what, what kind of community is that? How can we make America great when our universities are telling our kids just the opposite of what they need to know and feel and practice? So you have the perfect opportunity, see? You're on campuses. You can make a difference, but do you have it in you to do so? So here's what I suggest. You have to decide, one, Yes, I do want to be a leader. If you don't want to be, there's a lot of followers out there. So no problem, you'll have a lot of company. But if you want to make a difference in your families, in your communities, where you work, where you live, if you want to be there to influence, inspire, encourage, uplift, then you need to start now. People say leaders are born. No, not real leaders. Real leaders are not born. They have made decisions in their lives and taken steps that put them in a place where they ended up being the person that made the difference. So, I'd like to use an example of life, if you're pro-life. If you're not, and this is not your issue, fine, okay? Pick the issue that means something to you, that right now you're thinking is very important. Could be guns could be trade. I'm a passionate fair trader, totally opposed to free trade. That'll set off these establishment Republicans. I got a president in the White House that supports me. First time in my life. Excellent. No, Reagan was not a free trader, even though they thought he was. Anyhow, we won't go there. Um, the, uh, so there's lots of issues out there, really good issues. Immigration is another great issue, all right? These are terrific issues. Pick one. Start someplace. Okay, you can't do 10. You have to pick one. And then what you do is you learn something about it. To be a leader, you have to know what it is that you care about, that you want to fight. It can't be in your head anymore. It's got to move from the head to the heart. You have to say, this is right. This country should be moved in this direction. This community should take this step. I know it. I've seen it. I've talked to the other side. I am certain of it. And then you can represent it. You speak with passion. You speak from your heart and you touch others. It's the greatest form of communication. It's how Reagan was so successful. He didn't talk with facts and figures. He had them, he'd lay them out, and then he'd talk from his heart and millions would be touched and moved. And they would change their lives and they'd be motivated to take steps that helped to turn the country around. You need to learn to speak from your heart. And the only way you can do that is first, you know the issue. Okay, you know the issue. So you pick one, you can change it, but let's pick life. So you have an example, because I am a passionate pro-lifer and I never like to miss an opportunity to speak about it. Okay, you're pro-life, go find somebody who's pro-choice. Okay, find someone who's pro-choice, sit down with them, casually mention to them, I understand you're pro-choice. How could you possibly be? Every single time a life is taken. Now, I know that's hard. 
You've probably hung out with pro-lifers and you said to them, I think the other side's wrong. But until you talk to someone else, you can't lead. You, can't, you have to be comfortable talking to the people who disagree. And you don't have to be mean-spirited about it. You don't have to be insulting. You just have to open up a dialogue. And they're going to say to you, okay, sure. You're telling me you're for a 14-year-old raped by her dad. You're going to force her to have the child. Carry the child nine months. What kind of person are you? And you're going to think, hmm, actually, I think I have a class. I think i got to get out of here. How did I get myself in this ridiculous situation? I don't want to support such a thing. That's a terrible thing. You have to decide, are you for exceptions or not? Then you leave this little dialogue that you had, and you talk to somebody who's pro-life, and you say, what do you do on rape and incest? You know, it's, it's a tough one, don't you think? It's their best argument. Of course it's tough. It's their very best argument. You come to me and I say, look, I can't pick and choose which children live and which die. I know it's a child. I know it's a baby. And nobody's given me authority to pick and choose which ones live and which ones die. I fight for the life of all unborn children, period. All right? Now, we have to do something for this poor child. We have to be there, support them, stay with them, do whatever we can to help them. But we do them a favor when we make certain we do all in our power to keep them from aborting that child. Because there's a second victim. Women who've had abortions have terrible issues, many, many of them, for the rest of their lives carry enormous scars. You will learn this as you start to study it, as you go onto the internet and talk to women. Women have started this whole movement a couple years back a dozen or so now, I think, and, and it's called Silent No More, where women have had abortions instead of keeping it inside, telling no one, being so traumatized by it that they don't want anyone else to know, they are now speaking out about it, going to legislatures over the past dozen years to tell people, this is not just like another alternative. Let me tell you what, how it impacted my life. All right, now you're getting it. Now you're starting to realize, you've listened to some of these testimonies, you've talked to somebody like me, you've talked to some good, very good pro-lifers who believe in exceptions. Okay? Not a problem. And you decide what you believe. That's key. That's the key. What do you believe? Who are you? All right? Are you somebody that believes as a pro-lifer in fighting for all the children? Or do you believe it's only right to have this exception? Now you know where you stand, so you go back again. Maybe now you pick up two or three people in this hanging around in the student lounge. And you say, I'd like to talk to you all about something. Abortion. It's never right. You can't defend it, can you? And you're going to feel the pressure again. But now you know where you stand on their best one. So you go back to them and say, what do you think? How about the baby that's viable? Huh? How about that? You think that baby should be aborted? That's, what, five months? And let them start feeling the pressure, OK? So they want to limit it. They do want to limit abortion. How much? How much are we getting back here, OK? All right, how about when the heart beats? What do you think that is? Okay, so now you've got a dialogue on. You go back again and again and again till you're a little more comfortable, till you've looked at the issue, till you know without question that you know abortion is bad all the time and that you are going to take it upon yourself to represent the unborn anytime you can. Then you prepare yourself and you wait for one of your classrooms. I don't care if it's math or history. It could be any class. For somebody to mention abortion, somebody to mention Roe v. Wade, somebody to mention the march in Washington in January, anything, to give you an opportunity to speak for the unborn. And you got 20 people in that class, 25, and you say, you know, you just mentioned something about Roe v. Wade. I just want you to say, how can anyone in this classroom support this awful practice? 
And I'm telling you, you are then going to certainly feel the fire. Okay? You're going to have people looking. People are going to be in the room scratching their heads saying, what in the world is she doing? Why would she say anything? Why do you say anything? Because you can save lives. You can save lives when you open your mouth and speak. You cannot when you are quiet. That is a leader. So you take it upon yourself to feel that fire, to feel uncomfortable, to feel as if you wish you never opened your mouth. And then you know you're not ready. So you go back again, and you do it again, and again, and again, until it matters not at all to you how people are reacting, because you're putting in minds the seed that it's a child. And you don't know, 10 years from now, two years from now, next month, that somebody says, you know, I've never thought of it as that, but now that I'm in this situation, it keeps resonating, a child, a child. You can save lives if you have courage. You can change people's mindset. You can open up their life in the future to think about things differently. If you're willing to speak out about what you believe, that's what's important. That's where it's all at. To be a leader, you have to stand up for your beliefs when it's tough. And you have to speak out. When you go to your classrooms, people should know who you are, what you believe. If some teacher says, listen, I don't want you taking a position on immigration, you can say, I have as much right as anyone in this classroom to have a position, a legitimate position. If you guys want to have a debate, I'm here to debate it. But no one can keep me quiet. Political correctness has to go out the window and stay there. And it's going to be tough for you. But who are we? if we are not Americans practicing the great, great gifts that have been given us, the benefits of the opportunity to speak our minds, to be who we are meant to be, to know what we believe, not what our parents believe, not what teachers have told us, but to be who we are meant to be, to find a cause that's bigger than ourselves, to fight for that cause. And there's no better, no better cause out there than life or this great country of ours or your community, or your families. And when I say be a leader, I don't mean that you have to run for office. Most of those in our elected positions are not leaders. I hate to disappoint you, but their whole purpose in life is to stay in office. And you cannot lead when that's your greatest concern. You have to do what's right, recognizing it may be used against you later in an election. But that's what it takes to be a leader. We need real leaders in this country, people who stand up and fight for what is right, to speak up and to make a difference in your families, in your communities. Be a leader. When you go to an office this summer, you have a job, make certain in your mind, tell yourself as you first day, everybody in this office is going to know what I believe. I can say it graciously. I can say it with humor. But I am not going to keep quiet because I know they disagree with me. That is not happening. I need to practice knowing that I am an American with enormous enormous gifts here, and I'm making use of them because if I don't, this country will lose the freedoms they have today. And I challenge every one of you to begin this process immediately. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you very much. I'm glad to take any questions you have. Um, you mentioned, uh, so the sort of two positions were a pro-life position and a pro-choice pro -choice sure. position. 
Um, I think there might also be room for sort of more like moderate in the middle position that, which is sort of more what I believe, which um, that, you know, that abortion is a very complex moral issue about whether a fetus is a life or not. Um, and it involves questions of personhood and identity. Um, and there are, can be a, a rare, like a, because there's so much, so sort of um, dif difference in various intuitions about whether a fetus is a person, mm -hmm. maybe we should question, um, like, like maybe we should not be very certain either mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I go, and so I'm sorry. I guess I was I was wondering, um, how would you respond to someone who's just arguing that um, people should take abortion very seriously and know that it's definitely possible that they're um, uh, doing something that is immoral by having an abortion, but also recognize that you know you can calculate uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. moral things Got differently um, and maybe. Uh, the moral calculus sure. could tip in certain situations. Um, two points. First of all, I commend you for asking that question because you know how passionately pro-life I am, and so that's a difficult thing for her to say. Um, and let me say, first of all, when I debated this issue back in probably the 80s, I started, mm -hmm. uh, 73 was Roe v. Wade decision, and I used to debate a lot of the feminists who said it's not a baby, it's not a baby, it, it's a group of cells, just a group of cells. And I used to say to them, listen, if it was just a group of cells, I'm in complete agreement. The government can't be telling me when and when I do not take off this mole here. You know, that's none of their business. The problem is it's not a group of cells. It's a baby. I firmly believe that. And they said, no, it's not. Then along came something called sonograms, ultrasounds, you know, uh, ultrasounds. And that showed, guess what? It's a baby, okay? It's clear from this test. Uh, it's like 80-some percent of women, if they have the ultrasound will not have an abortion because they see it and they say, my gosh, it's a child. Now, this is my response to your question specifically. It's either a baby or it's not a baby. It is not maybe, okay? I say it's a baby. The sonogram, the science says it's a baby. We have a heartbeat in three weeks. I don't know any plants that have heartbeats. This is a child, okay? All right, that being said, the second thing is that we have to decide when we put our children first. It's difficult. You suggested a moral issue there. It's not a moral issue if it's not a child. There's no moral issue whatsoever. It's only a moral issue because it is a child. And I believe, without question, when you think of all the reasons, and I've had women come up to me, young girls your age, say they had an abortion because they had to, uh, because they had to go to college, they had to finish, they were getting great grades, they got to get a PhD, they're going to be doctors, whatever it is. Wonderful, wonderful goals. And I just say to myself and sometimes to them, you put your career, your schooling, ahead of the life of your child. That is why it's such a terrible, terrible decision. When I used to be a free trader, one day I became a fair trader. I didn't sit there and think, oh my gosh, the damage I've done by promoting free trade. It's not a big deal, okay? But when I think one day, my gosh, I was encouraged to take, have an abortion, and now today I know it's a child. You, 
Can you deal with that? Can you deal with that? Because that is what happens to women who've had abortions. Friends, family, boyfriends are right there pushing them, encouraging them. I read the other day, it's 40% of women have abortions, did it to make someone else happy. Someone else happy, that someone else doesn't have to live with the fact years later that they allowed somebody to take the life of their own child. Increased depression, increased alcoholism, increased drug use, it's all there for women who've had abortions because of this issue. Go to the internet and let, just pull up women who've had abortions speaking out, silent no more, and it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking of what they have to live with the rest of their lives. Every one of you, think twice, think twice. Have the sonogram, take a look. You'll see and you will feel, without question, it is a child and it's your child. Another question. Yes, back here. Um, in your kind of list of how to be a leader mm -hmm. successfully, you say to pick an issue, know the issue. Would you recommend starting off with one particular issue like abortion or free trade? Or can we take on multiple issues? What is your opinion on how to start off? I would, without question, start out with one. Because, because just to get yourself started, maybe you can accomplish your goal in two or three months. You may be able to do it in less. But pick one, and, and you know, when I'm called to talk about guns on TV, I immediately go, not to NRA, or to speak on college campuses about it, I go to the other side. What are they saying? Is there something new, some new evidence, some new study that I should be aware of? Because I don't want to be sitting there opposite, the camera's gone, and have them say something, and me say, oh, that's a really good argument. I don't have any new response to it, you know? Okay, it, it, so you have to do the same. You have to start hearing what they are saying. What is their, what is their reason for the position they have? You know, the other side has some good arguments. Ours are better, ours are right, but they have arguments that are persuasive and you should be aware of it. And sympathetic, sometimes they're very sympathetic because they've come from a different place than we have. And, and so you have to say, well, I can see, you know, if I was in that circumstances in my life, then and I can see why they ended up where they did. But by having this kind of a dialogue with them, then you can get a sense of how you can influence them, how you can talk about where you come from and make them sympathetic. And then I would go to another issue. If you try to do three or four, um, I'm not saying not to. If you're very well versed in two or three issues now, there's no reason you can't do two or three. But I, I always believe that you get one down and you work it until you just know I am pro-life. There's no question about it. No matter who comes to me, under what circumstances, I'm gonna do everything in my power to help them, to be there, support, make certain they deliver that child. And then I go to the next issue and work it. I, I, I promised this gal right here. See that gal right there, third row, yes? Yeah, you had a question, if yeah. you still have a question. Oh, yeah. Hi, I'm Daniela, I'm from California. I've heard you speak a couple of times, um, but I have a question about fair trade. Um, trade deficit and trade surplus isn't a really consistent indication of the wealth of a country. And right now, as you could probably tell, I'm more on the free trade side, but I'm really sure. interested in your argument for fra fair trade and sure. how it benefits the individual mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. America. And, and that is exactly the point is the individual. Uh, the problem, and I'll, I'll say it as sure as I can, um, when we have factories in this country, who are they employing? 
Um, we have a huge, we had a huge manufacturing base, uh, and they employ individuals who tend not to be highly educated. They work with their hands, they stand when they work often in assembly lines. They are not like college educated individuals who go off and work in a business, all right? So, so those people are well cared for when we have jobs that allow them to not attain you know, college education. And they get into these factories and they're paid at the time when we were losing them and I was in the debate. They were paying $15, $18 an hour. They had benefits. If their son, one of the members of the community, that's very highly in community, you know each other, it's very supportive in the community in these factories. And, and if your son gets, you know, loses his way, gets into drugs, whatever, and wants to get back on his feet, they open their doors and then they welcome members of the family, get them jobs, they give them, they promote from within. It is a terrific, a terrific opportunities for those without educations, okay? The unskilled Americans. And the key to a strong economy is you have the ladder, the economic ladder, and you have a rung at every single spot. So if you got a PhD, you come in here, there's a rung, you can start climbing even further. But if you only have a high school education or less, you have a rung to get you started as well. And that way the American dream applies to everyone. You can work your way up. You make mistakes in life or you have a slow start, nothing to do with your own, uh, your own doings, but just whatever happened in life, you have a chance to go straight up a ladder. When you take the bottom five rungs and you take them out, and then I sit there on national television debating a Harvard grads who say, we don't even want those jobs. Why would we want them? What do you mean, why would you want them? Just because you Ivy Leaguers don't want them doesn't mean Americans, good, hard-working Americans, aren't proud to have them. They're taking care of their family. They're putting their kids through college. They're buying homes. For gosh sakes, these are important jobs for a whole segment of society. And free trade says those jobs aren't what's important. We can send them overseas. These factories can go overseas, and people can be hired for much less than $15 an hour, for $2.50 an hour, and the product will come back and they'll be so much cheaper. The question is, are we a country of cheap goods, consumers, or are we a country of working men and women? And that is the basic issue. Your question's an excellent one. If our President of the United States and our Congress is to set policy that's best for American families, American workers, then they have to go the route of fair trade because free trade is what has hurt these people more well, there's two or three issues, but that is a significant issue as we have exported jobs all around the world and allowed them to bring their goods in with no tariff, no tariff. So I met with a, a fellow who owned a textile industry, uh, um, several textile factories, and he told me, Bay, I have two choices. Move all these, in, all these factories overseas, fire all the American workers, or go out of business. I cannot keep them open because my competitors now are doing it for much less and they're bringing in and they're dramatically less. The product's dramatically less, so I have no choice. I have to go that route or I have to go out of business. Americans lost jobs because Washington did not take their, their problems, their, their lives into any consideration when they made these deals. So that is why I'm so passionate. It's because of American people. Others. Yes, I have one here, one back here, one over here. Good, I, lot. I think oh, one more? Okay, last. very good. All right, thank you. Um, on. Yeah. Okay, um, so I'm Katrina Fee, and I'm from New York. 
Um, and you were talking about how our society is kind of um, breaking down, um, especially in regard to like the Parkland shooter. Um, but connecting that back to like pro-life, do you think that our society and how it's crumbled a bit um, from what it should be has affected um, women's dependency and um, look to abortion as an option, viable option? Do you think that's like part of it? I would flip it and I would say the fact that we approve of abortion, that we have made it so that it's just not a big deal, is a clear statement to our young people that life is not precious. We do not fight for life in this country. Why? I mean, they are reasonable people and they're saying it's okay to kill them at minus two weeks, but plus two weeks is somehow more sacred. It, it, we have to be fighting for life at all times. We have to send the message to our young people. Life matters. It matters. And then we've got to prove it to them by the way we care for people, one another. You know, we, you know as you young ladies think of what you want to do, you've got to get the best education you possibly can. But at the same time, understand that the greatest, the greatest responsibility you'll take on is to be a wife and a mother. And that has to be first. That, those kids have to be first. So many women across the country have put careers first. But you don't have to have the children if you've got a good career going. But once those kids are born, that has to be the center of the family. And all decisions have to be made according to what's best. That is sacrificing for your kids. That's being a true leader. You're giving up. You're fighting for your kids. And you're going to make certain you're the one that's guiding them and leading them and teaching them. And thank you all very, very much. Great questions, great audience. Good luck to all of you.